Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, hello to our loyal listeners and also to anyone who's just eavesdropping. I'm Ben Baldanza and this is Airlines Confidential. Another good guest discussion coming up with Mike Whitaker, the head of public policy for Hyundai Air Mobility, one of the several players looking to break into the electrical vertical takeoff and landing or eVTOL aircraft space. But first, I'm going to ask my co-host Chris Chimes to start with a quick discussion of some airline news as usual. Hey, Chris. Hey, Ben. How are you? And hey to our listeners. Um, you set a quick discussion on news, so I'm going to do my best to indeed make it quick. Uh, I'm actually recording today on board the beautiful Carnival Mardi Gras as we celebrate her first voyage after her christening last Saturday in Port Canaveral. So if we get interrupted by a ship's horn or a public address announcement, we'll just kind of roll with it. Uh, we're at sea today on our way to San Juan, and perhaps every minute or so you might hear a little rumble that's bolt the first roller coaster at sea it's about three or four decks above above my uh, stateroom here so let's get going let's try a lightning round kind of discussion and move quickly then first up earnings we talked about delta's profit uh, report last week for the third quarter now we've got third quarter numbers from alaska american and united with more coming in Give us the Ben take on highlights from this carrier investor call. Well, Chris, I'm going to like your PR thoughts on these two because I think these were really interesting releases. The calls are one thing where they get questions from analysts on all kinds of stuff. But generally, I like to look at the earnings release also because that is the narrative the company wants to say, right? And so... When you look at these earnings for United, Alaska, and American, I think they're interesting for what they say and what they don't say both. In terms of what they say, they all sort of found a way accounting-wise to say they made a profit in the quarter, but with lots of special items and things like that. So you saw this, well, we made a profit, but if you look at it this way, it's a loss. They also all went out of their way to talk about how much better their financial numbers were versus last year at this time and last quarter, all of which are positive news. And they all tried to pitch that as, you know, momentum of things getting better. What I thought was interesting that none of them mentioned was sort of the difficult third quarter operationally that the whole industry had with mandating vaccines, with labor shortages in some case, with lots of cancellations in the industry. And I get if you're telling your own narrative, you don't want to relive the bad stuff. But what I'm a little surprised at, Chris, is that no one sort of used that as a positive of, hey, we learned this summer with a lot of demand. We learned 
how to better match our capacity with our people and things like that. And we're a much smarter operation now, thanks to this summer and something like that. And nobody did that. And I thought that was kind of interesting. The other thing that I'll mention before I ask you to sort of give your PR thought on that idea is that United is the only one of the four earnings so far as we record this that specifically called out a target and momentum about improving their unit costs. Everybody else was talking about, and United did too, revenue coming back with more business and such. But United made it a big deal, including in the initial statement by CEO Scott Kirby, that part of its plan is to reduce its unit cost below fuel, below 2019 levels. And I thought it was fascinating that an airline like United put costs so high in its discussion about what it thinks it's important. And in some ways, I think that sets them ahead of their sort of equal size kind of competitors at really understanding the whole picture. What do you think about not bringing up operations and United making costs so prominent in their release? Yeah, I think that's that's a fair observation. Um, I can't get in the head of these other airlines and their executives and what they're thinking. But as I was reading some of this, I'm guessing that they're trying to like, especially for employees, but also customers and others, but they're trying to point to where we can get to in with this progress. And they don't want to kind of look backwards on the operational issues. And they're really trying to also get out in front of any kind of anxiety about vaccine mandates and other kinds of things to kind of remind employees, we're almost there. <laughs> Let's keep moving to the light here. So that was my take on some of that messaging. I, I agree that that investors especially are going to, you know, along with customers, but investors are wanting to know how you're not going to repeat what happened this summer with the busy uh, holiday travel season. So I think they left some things on the table, but um, I also kind of think I know where they might be trying to go with a few messages. Well, that makes sense. You know, I wasn't able to listen to all the earnings calls, although I listened to some of them. And sure enough, the analysts all brought those things up and said, well, what are you doing about operations? And do you have enough people now? And and they all asked what they thought about labor availability going into the holidays and things like that. It's just they didn't, none of them mentioned it in their release themselves. All of them were optimistic and sort of talked about business travel's return. And interestingly, Chris, and this is another sort of real spin, I thought, and I'm not trying to be too negative here, but they all sort of talked about starting to see some business travel come back, which of course that's true and that's positive, but they all said in a way that sort of implied that it's on its way back to 100%. And nobody said it's on its way back to 100%, but the tonality when they talk and when they when you read what they say, it's sort of, here's where we are on this journey back to 100%. And I'm still convinced it's not going to be 100% back, and maybe I'm a lone voice in this wilderness. But I don't know. What do you think about that? I guess my reply is 100% of what? I don't know what 100% of anything is right now. I'm kind of with you. I think I think it's going to take longer to get to 
kind of 2019 levels. I do think business travel is going to come back, but I do think behaviors have changed, patterns have changed. You know, we all keep talking about that, even in our individual workplaces with regard to, you know, not only is business travel going to be down, but travel from your house to your office is going to be down. And so I think that's going to just have a ripple effect for a longer time than we anticipate. But, you know, going back to after 9-11 and going back after the financial meltdown of 2008, there were a lot of predictions about business travel being off the table, and it did come back. So I do think it will come back, but I think it's going to be a different path this time. Uh, then another recurring topic of our conversations, Ben, and that's unfortunately lousy operations. This past week, it was SkyWest's turn to go through the car wash with the top down, uh, canceling hundreds of flights on multiple days. This impacted multiple carriers, including American United and Alaska and Delta. And I guess my question is for you, Ben, how bad did this suck? <laughs> well, I, I'd say it was sort of more of the same in a way. I don't know that it was worse than what we've seen that black cloud, you know, float around the industry, American Southwest spirit, right, and, and things. But SkyWest does fly for multiple carriers. And so when they have a problem, they lose a lot of connections. And importantly, as you know, Chris, when we worked at U.S. Airways, we had a lot of regional feed and a lot of things. And you can let a regional operator fly the plane, but the customer's buying American, United, or Alaska. They're not buying SkyWest, really, right? The operator's SkyWest. So when the flight cancels and they miss their connection or their bag doesn't connect or their you know, they lose their trip because of that. It's not really SkyWest as a company that gets the negative from the customer. It's really, it's the airline that sold the ticket, the United, the American, the Alaska. So I think what's bad about it is that it reinforces that if you have these kinds of contracts with regional carriers, you have responsibility for ensuring that they can deliver on their promise as well. And you're not running their company, but you're scheduling their airplanes and you're telling them, you know, how much to fly. And there has to be a relationship between the regional carrier and the mainline carrier that operationally they're talking about what can happen here. So I think the interesting thing about the SkyWest thing is this is the first time that dark cloud sort of at least has gotten to the regional industry or at least the spotlight got on them, right? I can't say for sure there haven't been regional issues earlier in the summer that just weren't reported all that much. But it just goes to show how hard it is to get these big companies back on track when things start going off. Because it's not just your people, but it's your partners too. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, it's nobody's fault, but it's human nature that in these kind of situations, when you're at American Airlines, you're an agent at American Airlines or Delta, and you're dealing with an angry customer, this is when you kind of throw the regional partner under the bus a bit and say, it's not us. I'm really sorry, Mr. Baldanza. You know, it's it's our regional partner, SkyWest, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, when you're trying to deal with an angry mob, 
you're probably not as effective in kind of defending the network of your company and you're looking for someone for the customer to blame and don't blame us. And so I have to wonder how many of those kind of conversations are were taking place at airports across the country, across multiple mainline carriers as they were kind of dissing their regional partner. Well, and it's possible some of those people aren't on the ship you're on right now because an airline's operation didn't get them to the port on time, right? Yep, could be. TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed which means enhanced operations and a true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And Pratt & Whitney's GTF engines are redefining aviation with up to 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint. GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And then Ben, on the international front, some carriers are starting to flex a bit. Spain's airline trade group says that there are almost 2% more flights in the schedule for Spanish carriers this winter than in 2019. EasyJet reported a $1.5 billion quarterly loss, but says the recovery is clearly underway. So where do you put your chips on all this if you had a bet on which part of the world gets to the airline recovery party first? Well, that's a good question, Chris. You know, I think the U.S. has seen recovery in the leisure sector this summer. The industry stubbed its toe a bit trying to deliver on all the service, but there was very strong leisure demand in the quarter we just ended that suggested people, at least for vacations and for personal travel and such, are ready to get out there again and fly again to fun places. So in that sense, I'd say the U.S. is ahead of the rest of the world in that sort of leisure domestic kind of travel. In terms of international, I, I saw this about Spain. And what struck me about that is I've, some people might be critical of me saying this, but I've always thought of Spain as Europe's Florida, meaning the sunny, fun place where people go to have fun more than just a pure business destination. Yes, business goes to Spain also, but it's also a terrific place to travel. And people from the U.S. go there and lots of people from Europe go there the way people go to Florida here to visit pretty beaches and eat good food and all kinds of things. So it doesn't surprise me that the same kind of bullishness we've seen in travel in the U.S. is also starting to happen in Europe. But maybe that's less to big cities like London and Paris and Frankfurt but more to places like Spain, maybe Italy, maybe Greece, right? I'm saying the, the places that have a big leisure component as well. Obviously, plenty of leisure goes to the UK and Paris too, right? But still, I don't know that the international side is seeing any meaningful recovery in the business sector yet, 
just as the U.S. is starting to come back, but is still kind of sluggish. Even the carriers that talked about business travel talked about how there was something now when there used to be nothing, and that was a good sign. So I guess I'd put my chips, Chris, on continued leisure destinations around the world as the place that are most likely to see robustness in bookings for the next few months or maybe next year or so. Yeah, I think that's fair. The other thing, uh, if, if you kind of rewind back to kind of pre-COVID, I tend to think the U.S. industry was in a healthier financial position than perhaps Europe or other regions of the world. And then they got to market quickly, you know, raising money. And there was a fair amount of federal assistance as well. And so I think at the end of this pandemic period, hopefully we're nearing the end of it, the U.S. carriers, again, are in a better financial position where they can be quicker to make decisions and quicker to market and moving aircraft around and take advantage of the world up in the up. So I think that that all works in their favor. We'll be right back with our conversation with Mike Whitaker of Hyundai Air Mobility. Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Well, we have another great guest for you here on Airlines Confidential. We're happy to invite Mike Whitaker to the show. Mike is the Chief Policy Officer for Hyundai Advanced Air Mobility. Mike, welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm sure our listeners are going to love hearing what you have to talk about. You've had such an interesting career across aviation and industry and government. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Thanks, Ben. And uh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, I have, you know, your typical random airline uh, career. I started at TWA in the legal department in New York in 1991. So that sort of places me uh, demographically, I guess you could say. It, and those who know the airline industry, that was a pretty chaotic time in the industry. Carl Icahn owned TWA at the time, and it was about to go through its first of three bankruptcies. So I ended up uh, moving over to the business side and going to the DC office at TWA and then joining United Airlines, which at the time was the most profitable airline in the world. Uh, and then ultimately going through bankruptcy with uh, United Airlines 15 years later. So uh, I think those who have been around the industry would say a fairly typical resume. Uh, I was uh, I ended up being senior vice president, uh, Alliances International and Regulatory at Alliances. I mean, at uh, United, we uh, were focused on Star Alliance and growing that uh, alliance during that time period. In 2009, I went to India to work with my good friend Raul Bhatia, who had started Indigo Airlines and uh, was there for a few years, came back and joined uh, the FAA in 2013 as the number two uh, in charge of the upgrading of the air traffic control system. So spent three years, three very interesting years in government. And um, when I joined the discussion of drones or flying cars or Urban air mobility just didn't exist. And by the time I left in 2016, it was about 
half of what I was focused on. So uh, I was there at a time, I think, when some of these new technologies really took off. So since leaving, I'd been doing some advising and then two years ago joined Hyundai to uh, help them shepherd this new project through. So, Mike, I'm going to ask an obvious follow-up here. It's a two-parter. How do these aircraft work? And where's the company hoping to go with this new technology? So the aircraft, uh, you're basically talking about the extension of electric uh, propulsion uh, to the aviation sector. So what we've seen with electric cars after years of sort of modest uh, fits and starts, you're really starting to see electric technology and cars really take over and, and become the future. For airlines, it's uh, a similar phenomenon. We're a little bit behind the car industry. It enables you to distribute your propulsion. So instead of, in a, in a car, for example, instead of one big engine, you could have four small engines, one on each wheel. For the aircraft, you can have multiple uh, rotors with small electric motors. And so it gives you redundancy. It gives you simplicity. It gives you a quieter mode of propulsion, but it's all about the battery technology. And that's the sort of the decisive technology in this equation. As for Hyundai, I think like a lot of car companies, uh, the view is that they're probably close to the maximum number of cars that'll be produced annually and looking forward to other modes of transportation. This is a, a, an area that has a lot of opportunity and a lot of opportunities to bring some of the prowess of a car manufacturer uh, to the airline industry. Every, basically every aircraft on the planet is a handmade, very expensive vehicle. So if you could produce those using some of the technologies of, of a car company, you have the opportunity to really bring the cost of the vehicle down. Well, this is a fantastic new idea and technology that's obviously getting lots of press and SPAC interest in others. What other companies are in this space, Mike? Are you in direct competition or are the other companies trying to carve out their own niche? We don't want you to promote your competition, but give us a sense of the broader landscape of the players and technology in this space. Well, I think, you know, just in the last two years, we've seen a number of companies exit this space. I think um, two years ago, Boeing and Airbus were both very involved in this space. Uh, General Electric was uh, involved in this space. So some of those big players have left, but it's it's quite often reported that there are between 250 and 300 companies that are trying to make some version of, of advanced air mobility, uh, which encompasses primarily, you think of it as a vertical takeoff and landing uh, electric. But some of these companies have hybrid vehicles. Some of them are fixed wing aircraft, but uh, there are a couple hundred competitors out there in this space. Well, and is the idea with this technology that I could leave my office in Midtown, which I don't have, by the way, but get in one of these vehicles and get out to LaGuardia quickly? And is that the kind of idea or is it to go to avoid the airports completely and just take a short trip further up Manhattan? Or tell me sort of the mission of these kinds of things. So I think there are probably many, many use cases that we haven't even thought of yet. But um, the idea is really to give you an option to bypass congestion or bypass physical barriers. So for example, you could imagine, you know, we're now faced with these supply chain issues and you see all these ships off the coast of California. 
you could imagine cargo vehicles that are able to go uh, short a ship and transfer, Chris, this is probably of interest to you, transfer goods from the land to the ship. So it, it, it's a use case that's actively being pursued by a number of companies. So cargo in, in that type of environment, you could think of any large urban area where you have workers who might be 50 miles outside the city center and they're living where the housing is cheaper. If they had an option to travel that distance in 15 minutes, it opens up an entire uh, segment of the population to live in a, a remote place and work in a, in a high paying environment. There are just really numerous opportunities for disrupting the existing model. And I think it's difficult to predict, just as it would be hard in 1990 to have predicted the iPhone as laptops became a thing. I think it's hard to know where this is going to go, but there are a lot of opportunities there. I'm going to ask a stupid question. Not the first one I've asked, but so are, are these meant to be dummy proof that the average person with some training could fly? Would you Would you have your own? Would you rent these? If so, who's going to fly them? Because there's not exactly a, an overpopulation of pilots. So how are these going to be managed and flown? It's a, actually a really good question. The FAA has staked out a position, which I think is the correct position, that these are all going to have a pilot, at least initially. So I think virtually all the designs that are on the board are for a piloted aircraft, but everybody anticipates at some point that pilot comes off the aircraft. And so you move to a remote pilot situation where one pilot is overseeing the operation of several aircraft and the aircraft are operating autonomously. Most people aren't quite ready for that, which is understandable. So I think what you'll see over the next 10 to 15 years is piloted aircraft, but aircraft that are incredibly autonomous, um, capable and automated already. So in essence, the pilot will be overseeing an autonomous operation from inside the aircraft. The, the technology is there. We've seen it, of course, in the military sector for decades. But even in general aviation, uh, you, may be, you may have seen the release last year of Garmin's Autoland system, where if a pilot in a small plane is incapacitated, the passenger can push a big red button and it communicates with air traffic control. It takes control of the aircraft and it lands the aircraft and brings it to a stop on the runway. So the technology is there. It's just a question of getting people used to it and also getting FAA to the point where they'll certify it. It's absolutely fascinating. We can wave to George Jetson as we go by, right? <laughs> um, a related follow-up on resources, specifically infrastructure. Are you going to be competing for airspace, not only with commercial traffic, but with growing drone traffic? Airspace is a, a very interesting piece of this. I think technologically, it's not that hard to figure out with the automation, the sense and avoid the route optimization. The challenge is going to be incorporating it into a very complicated uh, air traffic control system. And as, as we all know, it takes years to introduce new technologies into that system. Um, so that's going to be a bit of a long process. Um, you could build one of these vehicles today and fly it uh, and operate under the current rules. So you would call air traffic control, you'd get your clearance, you would communicate by voice as you flew and land. Uh, there's no reason not to do that. But to be efficient, we're going to have to introduce new technologies in the, in the system 
to allow these vehicles to coexist in a way that's highly automated and doesn't take a huge amount of, of uh, controller time to, to actually direct these vehicles. Ultimately, in urban areas, these are going to be densely operated environments that we just don't currently have the operating rules or the technology in place to do that. Mike, you were talking at the top half of the conversation about some of the FAA philosophy on regulating this sector. How are they dealing specifically with all these new technologies and how is that going to impact the adoption process? So the FAA is actually dealing with, I would say, three big buckets of, of new technologies and new, new users in the airspace. So in addition to operating the highly complex and very safe system that runs every single day, they're introducing these new users into the system. One which has had a lot of press recently is, is space flight. And we've gone from uh, a, the occasional space flight to fairly frequent launches. And these are particularly challenging. These are vertical operations in a horizontal system, if you will. So they're, they're a little bit of a challenge. And then you've got the small drone operations, the delivery vehicles, and this, this type of thing. Advanced air mobility is a little bit behind those two technologies as far as currency. So the FAA is trying to manage all of these pieces. As I was saying, you know, a lot of the, you know, you can operate these things now, but you just can't operate them very efficiently. So there's going to be a lot of work that has to happen over the next 10, 15 years to change the rules or add new rules to enable these operations in a more efficient manner. But, you know, it's a big airspace up there. There's plenty of, of, of room to coexist. It's really just having the technology to make that happen in an efficient way. Mike, are there prototypes flying? If so, where? And have you actually flown in one? Can you tell us what it would be like to be a passenger in one of these? Well, I have not flown in one. There are uh, some prototypes, mostly that are flown in, in some other countries. There have been some test flights in this country as part of the certification process. But it's it, it touches on a really interesting point, which is the experience in flying in a very small aircraft, a four-seater or five-seater, is very, very different than flying in an A320 or a 777. And a lot of people who've flown a lot really have no sense of how visceral it can be to be in a in a little bitty aircraft flying over a funnel of heat that sends you bouncing around uh, through the air. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how all of these new entrants deal with the passenger comfort aspect, what technologies we might deploy to make that a more comfortable flight. And Ben, to use your example earlier, if you want to go from Midtown to LaGuardia, you know, some days that'll be a very pleasant flight. Some days it might be quite a bumpy flight and some days it might be bordering on an amusement park ride. So not everybody's going to want to engage in all of those types of activities. And it's, it's going to be one of the challenges we have to meet as people learn about this new technology. So having said that, Mike, is there a benefit to being first to market or to learn from others who go out there first? I think because the technology is not quite ripe um, in, a, in a couple key ways, particularly in the battery technology, I think the the first entrants are going to have quite a few operating limitations and how, how far they can fly on a single battery charge, basically. Um, so we view it at Hyundai, we view our timing, which is 
targeting the 2028 uh, to 2030 timeframe for entering the market as being uh, uh, one that we're comfortable with. We think the technology will be there and some of these rules and infrastructure will be in place. But some of these pieces have to come together before it's really going to be ready for prime time. So as a recovering airline guy, you know that uh, this industry measures just about everything. Is there a projected seat mile cost or how do you quantify the cost effectiveness of these aircraft? I think that's a, I think that's a really good question. It doesn't get very much attention. Uh, there are a lot of companies looking to manufacture these vehicles, but the really important thing is going to be what they cost at the end of the day. So how much you can keep that cost down. I think using a a rideshare model or a high utilization rate like the airlines have is going to be key to making this an affordable technology. Uh, a lot of discussion cent- centers around what does the Uber black car fare cost and can we come in around that area? That's recognizing a certain existing market and, and hoping to manage that. I think ultimately you have to do better than that. For, th- for this technology to be successful, it really needs to be much more uh, accessible and widespread. You've, you've got to pr- produce enough vehicles to bring that cost down. So I can't give you an exact metric, but it, it is going to be a, a key focus. You could build the best aircraft in the world, but if, if it comes in at $10 million and your competitor selling one for three, it's not going to take you very far. We'll go with that a little more, Mike, if you will. What do you think the price would need to be for consumers to really jump on this and make it a really attractive choice and a real viable business. I mean, obviously if it's, you know, if it's thousands of dollars, you're only going to have a few people that do it. You're not going to be able to do it for, you know, go to the app and pay 22 bucks either. So where do you think the prices are going to need to lie to make this work for consumers? I think the black car comparison is a good place to start. But I think you also can look at some of the savings and benefits that that derive from using the service. So if we go back to the example of an urban area where somebody lives 50 miles out of town where the average house costs $200,000 and they're able to fly to the city center where the average house costs a million dollars and the average job pays a lot more, that'll be a valuable service for that person. So I think you want to look at it from a network point of view. You want to look at it as a ne- access to network and what sort of new uh, economic opportunities are being created uh, from this. I think it's also important to say that it has to be, in, in our view, in Hyundai's view, it has to be accessible um, to areas where perhaps there hasn't been accessibility before. And a lot of urban uh, mass transportation systems have excluded certain communities. Um, this is an opportunity to sort of leapfrog and, and provide access to places that didn't have access before. But again, for us, it comes down to the, the bottom line of really producing a vehicle at a much lower cost and, and in, in numbers that make the business model work. Do you think we'll see this in the US before some other country or where do you think this is gonna break through? You know, that's a very current topic of conversation. And you see it with the small drones. Uh, you, you see some manufacturers who've said, well, the U.S. is moving too slowly, so we're going to go to Dubai and, and set something up. And that's fine. And it's a, a way of proving out the technology. But ultimately, the U.S. and Europe are massive markets. And you, you know, you're going to have to 
meet the certification and safety standards of those two markets. So it may make sense at some level to have some operations abroad as you're perfecting the technology, but ultimately we've got to bring FAA and EASA along to get certification and, and make this technology work. Well, going with that, Mike, what's the over-under year that Chris or I could book one of these and get on it and fly it? Well, Ben, you know, I think some of the airlines are taking orders. So if you want to talk separately, we can work something out. But um, I like to think that the decade of the 30s is going to be the decade of AAM. We'll, we'll certainly have some operations that happen over the next 10 years, but I think that's when it will really start to pick up. And you'll start to see some some successful companies who've reached certification and are producing these vehicles. And they're looking for ways to to deploy them. What, one thing I'll mention, because I know, Ben, you've been a disruptor in the business model. There, you know, there are 5,000 airports in this country that are just dramatically underutilized. And this is a, a technology that could have a cost per seat mile that rivals a much larger aircraft. And it does open up potential business models and operations and use cases that connect smaller airports and allow you to avoid hubs. And um, I think we've seen some pretty successful business models that have followed that. So Mike, one more question here. If, and we talked about this a few months ago in a different show, not with the guests, but just Ben and I shooting the shit back and forth. Getting to the airport typically is not the role of an airline as far as getting the, the passenger to the airport. So right. when you talk about airlines placing orders, are they going to put their code on these? I mean, how's this anticipated as far as how's it going to operate under the umbrella of a major airline? You know, it's funny you say that, Chris, because I've had this conversation in several forums where I make the point that I've never seen an airline that really cared very much about how the passenger got to the airport. They really only care about you, you know, as you're in the gate area. What we've seen so far is a lot of interest in uh, hub carriers who don't want to be left behind. So it's it, it could be an interesting situation in a place like Chicago where you have a couple of hub carriers. But you're you're right to question whether the there is a a sufficient motivation to take the reputational risk to be involved in getting a passenger from downtown to the airport more quickly. I think there are other players that will invest in that. I think uh, city transportation systems are quite interested in doing that. But you're right. Hubs compete with each other for traffic, but they're not that. They don't tend to be that concerned about how the passenger gets to the airport. Well, Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming on. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about disruptive customers on board and when is business travel coming back. It's great to put our heads in the future and think about where aviation is going and how these disruptive technologies are going to change the way people and goods move. And we really appreciate what you're doing and coming on the show and telling us how you're thinking about this exciting business. Well, thanks for having me. It's a it's a great and interesting subject. So happy to happy to talk about it. Mike, great talking to you. Uh, hope to see you soon. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, everybody. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from the Archive.net 
the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The Archive.net is now boarding. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Mike Whitaker for that primer on eVTOL aircraft. Now it's time for us to take your questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, And you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Ben, we've got a question from Jamie out of Denver. It's a follow-up to our discussions, or some might say trash talk, about the BA low-cost airline initiative out of Gatwick. He writes, IAG already has a low-cost airline in Buell, so why wouldn't IAG simply move some Buell capacity to Gatwick instead of starting a new low-cost BA unit there? Is there an issue transferring the BA slots to Bueller? This is a great question. And I tried to research this to get a formal answer, but don't have a perfect answer yet. But I think you're right in that I think a Spanish carrier getting the slots at Gatwick, especially with Brexit having happened, is going to be a challenge. There also could be other fleet issues, whether transferring fleet that BA wants to fly, maybe putting those on the Vueling operating certificate would have other issues as well. Also, employee issues about who's paying, whether you're now a Vueling employee versus a British Airways employee. So my guess is there were a number of issues. I'm sure IAG didn't forget about the fact that Vueling was there, right? In fact, Aer Lingus is a pretty low-cost carrier now, too. Maybe they could have done that with Aer Lingus as well. But I'm guessing that when IAG looked at the fleet issues, the labor issues, and the route authority and slot issues, they came to the conclusion that setting up a new entity that was part of IAG, but more closely linked to the UK and British Airways made the most sense. Great question though. And just to show that our listeners care about all things related to the airline business, Walter from Chugwater, Wyoming asked us, and by the way, I looked up to make sure Chugwater, Wyoming is a real place, and it is. <laughs> and he asked us, what was the first airline to provide barf bags to their passengers? You have an answer for this one, Chris? Uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, well, I do have my research a bit. And I got to say to Walter, this about takes the cake uh, as far as the weirdest question we've gotten about airlines, but it's a good one. So thank you very much for writing in. Although I'm going to call them air sickness bags and forego the barf bag reference, please. Not sure who actually invented the barf bag and the concept, but I can tell you that the old Northwest Airlines, Northwest Orient Airlines, which eventually would be branded the Northwest Airlines, was the first airline to use the plastic lined air sickness bags we are all now familiar with. That was back in 1949, created by a Dutch inventor, Gilmore Scheldel. 
prior to that, stewardesses handed out, and stewardesses, I use that because that's what they were called in, handed out wax paper bags or small cardboard boxes for passengers to uh, satisfy their air sickness feelings. Air sickness bags are actually a popular collector's item for airline geeks. Steven Spielberg is one well-known fan. Uh, the highest price I could find that was paid for a collector bag was $500 for a bag from a defunct French airline, Farman Airways, which dissolved in 1956. The airline, not the air sickness bag. So that's what I know. Um, if someone's got some more information, please write in. We'd love to hear more. That's a great trivia, Chris. And I actually bet that that product, the air sickness bag, was more important back in the 40s and 50s when planes flew lower, they weren't as smooth. I bet flights were a lot bumpier. I mean, airplane rides are pretty smooth now. I recognize that people still get sick on board and so you have them there. But I bet it was, you know, a more needed um, feature on the flights back then too. Well, Finer Wine is next and hopefully you won't get uh, sick from it. But a reminder that Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's Home to Gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. Well, this finer wine comes from Molly in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I was sitting in a window seat watching the baggage handlers load bags on my flight from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport on American Airlines. The worker was about 10 feet from the plane and was just tossing the bags from the cart into the plane. To be fair, he wasn't hurling them like he was in the Olympics or anything. But shouldn't airlines require these bags to be carried to the plane and placed inside instead of thrown? I was glad I hadn't checked a bag on that flight. Chris, what do you think? I think it depends on where you're sitting. I think it's a fine, especially when you're sitting and watching bags get tossed onto your flight, and if it's your bag. I don't think it's practical to think that each bag is going to be handled like a box of china or crystal glassware, gently carried and set onto the conveyor belt, and then somebody on the other end is going to softly place it in the belly of the, of the aircraft. I do think that airlines need to be aware of the perception and need to do better training in full view, but these are often uh, operations that are getting done in 10 or 15 minutes, and there's a lot of pressure on the crew to move quickly, but certainly throwing bags uh, that don't belong to you isn't the best way to present yourself to your customers. So I'll give it a fine, but with some punctuation to it. I agree with you on that, Chris. I thought about it at first. I thought that Molly almost thought it might be a wine when she added the line of, you know, they weren't tossing it like they were in the Olympics or anything. She was sort of trying to rationalize, you know, it wasn't that terrible. But the more I think of it, maybe pull the card a little closer and then, you know, a little toss won't even look that bad. I don't know. But I agree with you. I think it's a fine. So as we close with our shout outs for the week, uh, I want to shout out to Jared Isaacman, the founder and CEO of Shift4 Payments and the commander of the Inspiration4 commercial space flight. 
Well, I personally got mixed emotions about the social benefits of space tourism. I like how he added a charitable benefit to last month's flight, which included a former childhood cancer patient from St. Jude Children's Hospital. To date, that flight has raised $238 million for research and healthcare services for childhood cancer patients and for St. Jude Medical Hospital, which is also a, a big cause for us at Carmel Cruise Line. That's a great shout out, Chris. My shout out goes to United Airlines for finally admitting that they can't predict the pandemic. <laughs> for for months, they were talking so confidently about business travel coming back and summer being great and such. But then Scott Kirby went on TV and talked and this week and said, they finally said what they really were doing was planning for all kinds of scenarios and mostly were figuring out how to be able to respond quickly when they understood what the next step was. That made a lot of sense to me. And it was nice to hear what we all knew was true, that you can't predict what's happening next with this virus. So good job for United for telling us what we all thought you probably should have been doing anyway. I, I like that. You know, uh, years ago when John McCain ran for president, his bus was called, his campaign bus was called the Straight Talk Express. And it seems like Scott has taken over on the Straight Talk Express. So uh, good for them. And this is it for this week of Airlines Confidential. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Mike Lee. Safe sailing too, Chris. Thanks, Beth. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.